illuminating facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Welcome to the program. It is Tuesday. It's the 30th of May, 2023. So glad that you're with me. And you can call this number right now to get on air. You can ask me your question. 888-914-9149. That's the number to call. 888-914-9149. You can also email the program. Great to hear from you. The address is kale, C-A-L-E, at relevantradio.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Kale Clark. Hope you had a wonderful Memorial Day weekend. And it, this is one of those odd weeks, isn't it? It feels like it should be Monday, but it's not. It's Tuesday because Monday was the holiday. And I hope you had a blessed one. Hope you had a chance to go to the cemeteries as well and, and pray uh, for those who gave the ultimate sacrifice for freedom uh, in the United States and abroad. And if you didn't have a chance to check this out, do listen to our very, very special Salute to Service episode of The Kale Clark Show. Uh, we aired it yesterday, and you can catch the archived podcast at relevantradio.com, the Relevant Radio app. And you can listen to the incredible tribute uh, that was given. Tom Hoops joined me on the program from Benedictine College, and we talked about the great Father Emil Capon and the return of his remains to American shores. Uh, it was a very, very moving episode. So if you didn't uh, get a chance to listen to that, please do. And also, you can read a wonderful article about it by John Hanready on the relevant radio website. But I hope you had a blessed time. And now that you're kind of back at work, later on in the program, we're going to talk about how Jesus can help you professionally when you have to make really, really difficult choices and you're in a professional conundrum, God can walk with you in your work. Very often people want to compartmentalize their lives and what they do on Sundays never touches what happens on a Monday or on a Tuesday in this case, uh, but that's not the way it ought to be. We've got to live what's called unity of life and God can help us do that in our work. But once again, that phone number to call, 888 9149 as you're listening to the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. It's also the feast day of St. Joan of Arc, uh, which I didn't realize that when I kind of got my day going and I was uh, scrolling Twitter and my friend Andrew Pettiprin, uh was talking about uh, his favorite Joan of Arc movie. And Andrew, if you're listening, call in. you got to tell me about this movie because I hadn't heard of it. But um, it, it, truthfully, I've never watched a Joan of Arc movie. There's one called I think it was called The Messenger with Mila Jovovich, if you remember her as Joan of Arc. And there have been a few throughout the ages. Uh, but we're going to talk about the real Joan of Arc because her life is cinematic. I mean, it's too good to be true, but it was true. In fact, the great Mark Twain wrote a book, a very famous biography of St. Joan of Arc. And he said that it was his best book and his most favorite book of his that he had ever written. So we're going to talk about why that is. But just to kick this off, here are nine facts that I bet you didn't know about St. Joan of Arc. And I'm going to share them with you because she's pretty famous, but there are nine things in particular that you need to know about her to get this right. And Caroline Perkins, uh, writing over at Church Pop, uh, making holy all the things, uh, she wrote this little piece called Nine Things About St. Joan of Arc that you need to know. So number one, she was born in 1412, very young, a French peasant, uh, when God called her to do the extraordinary, the seemingly impossible. So that's number one. She was born in the 15th century, early uh, 1400s, 1412 to be exact. Number two, she was not a knight. She wasn't a trained soldier, despite all of her military exploits. She couldn't even read or write. 
And she had no idea how to how to pick up, how to use a sword until God called her on her mission. And we'll talk more about what that mission actually was uh, shortly. Number three, really nine amazing things that you need to know about Joan of Arc. Number three, at one point, she actually took the French name Jean Lapoucelle, Jean Lapoucelle, which means Joan the Maid. And it is said that she didn't even know her last name, her true last name. And so she was unlettered, uh, but she had a lot of smarts. And uh, she did have a, a, a very unique intelligence, and God used her. And when she was on trial, that really came through. Again, we'll talk about that shortly. But um, she didn't know her last name. And number four, the fourth thing that you need to know about St. Joan of Arc, she heard the voices of St. Michael the Archangel, St. Margaret of Antioch, and St. Catherine of Alexandria. Saints that gave her a message, spoke to her somehow, mystically, and told her of this mission that she had from God to crown the rightful king of France and put to an end the Hundred Years' War that had been raging with England. Number five, she encouraged soldiers to go to confession before battle. That's always a smart move. Committed her life to contemplation and prayer and and that, that, was, that was one of the key things about her, that she, get, she really kind of got started this practice of, hey, soldiers, be right with God before you go into the battlefield. And we, we should always try to be right with God, of course, and strive to be in a state of grace. If it's not, we need to get to confession. Number six, she was burnt at the stake very famously in the year 1431. It's kind of a kangaroo court that was convened, if you will, a very corrupt church trial, found her guilty of heresy, but of course, she is a canonized saint. The church actually reversed the findings of this corrupt uh, trial. It's Obviously, it was too late for Joan, but uh, nullified the results and obviously declared her to be a saint. And in fact, she was canonized in the year 1920. This is fact number seven that you need to know by Pope Benedict XV, not B16, but of course, uh, long before that, 1920, Pope Benedict XV canonized St. Joan of Arc in the year 1920. Number eight, she's the patroness of France and also of soldiers. Makes sense. And number nine, we'll talk a little bit more about this uh, very, very shortly. Mark Twain famously wrote a book about her life, which was recently republished, if you want to read it, in the year 2007 by Ignatius Press. So this is, um, this is really something I want, to, I want to dive into a little bit why Mark Twain wrote a book about her, because off the top, it doesn't seem like he would be necessarily the, 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 the best person to do this, because Mark Twain was, I think he had some inter- some amazing things to say about religion, and in fact, uh, without knowing it, he's really uh, kind of a, a purveyor of what's called typology, this idea that uh, God always acts the same throughout salvation history, and Mark Twain once famously said, history doesn't always repeat itself, but boy, it sure does rhyme. It sure does rhyme. And that's essentially what typology is, that God acted in the new covenant uh, through certain people, places, things, events, and he acts the exact same way as he did in the old in the new. And that's why St. Augustine said, the new covenant is in the old concealed and the old covenant is in the new revealed. We have the Ark of the Covenant of course, and the Ark of the Covenant in the, in the Old Testament, Raiders of the Lost Ark, all that stuff. Uh, the Ark of the New Covenant is, of course, Mary. And I know, I know, I did a little pun on Twitter. 
Uh, I called this episode, quote-unquote, Ark of the Covenant, A-R-C. Joan of Arc, okay, all right, all right. I won't win any uh, comedy awards for that one. But uh, I love my puns. And Mark Twain certainly was, uh, again, a guy who uh, who had a nice turn of phrase himself. Uh, far better than me, that's for sure. But again, seemingly uh, not the not the usual suspect to write such a book on St. Joan of Arc. Now, we know that Mark Twain's real name, of course, was, bonus points if you know this, Samuel Clemens. No relation to Roger Clemens, not an ancestor of Roger Clemens, I don't think. But um, he uh, certainly uh, didn't have many good things to say about religion, at least, in, at least when it came to organized religion, that's for sure. He kind of came from a Calvinist background on his mother's side. And a few years ago, there's actually a PBS documentary about um, Mark Twain and, and, and this trip that he made to Jerusalem. It was called Mark Twain's Journey to Jerusalem dreamland and this was back in uh 2017 it aired on on pbs and uh there's an article in the religion news service by kimberly winston about uh mark twain's religious views and it it kind of is good background but we're going to get into what he what he wrote about uh, saint joan of arc in just a second triple eight nine one four nine one four nine but let me let me just tell you what mark twain once said in 1865 about religion he said quote i have a religion but you will call it blasphemy. It is that there is a God for the rich man, but none for the poor. Perhaps your religion will sustain you, will feed you. I place no dependence in mine. Our religions are alike, though, in one respect. Neither can make a man happy when he is out of luck. End of quote. So again, he had a number of quotes on religion, was somewhat skeptical for sure, and he did, did not seem like, Uh, the greatest candidate to write a biography of a saint. But he went to the Holy Land in the year 1867. It was actually a a kind of a seminal moment in in the career of Mark Twain. It kind of catapulted him into a lot of popularity in the United States. And he wrote a book based on his trip to the Holy Land. It was called Innocence Abroad or The New Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, that's what really this PBS documentary was about. And Ron Powers was uh, interviewed uh, in, in the film, and he was a, a biographer of Mark Twain. And he said that Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens, had a constant, lifelong, jilted love affair with the Bible. And Ron Powers said that he wanted to believe, but he just couldn't believe. So how, how did he get to the Holy Land? Well, Mark Twain actually was writing at the time for a newspaper in San Francisco called the Alta California and he said to his editor, hey, hey, can you please send me 1200 bucks at once? He sent, a, he sent a, a telegram, if you will, to his editor. And he said, I want to go overseas. And surprisingly, they actually agreed to this. They, they sent him the money, and he booked himself onto America's first cruise ship of all time. And it was called the Quaker City. Come sail the seas on the Quaker City. And... uh Maybe the nightlife won't be what you expect, but at any rate. So he, so he was on the ship, and basically the, the people that were going there, they're going to Europe and then the Holy Land. It was a pretty big trip. And basically the passengers were in two groups. Number one, religious pilgrims that were seeking to go on pilgrimage in Israel. And then there were a bunch of young men that came from rich families that were kind of going on this trip to become a little bit more worldly wise, a little bit more sophisticated before they got married, settled down. And so Mark Twain started hanging out with both of those groups, and he wrote back to the newspaper what would become 
more than 50 dispatches, I guess, little editorials uh, in, in the newspaper. And he was completely, it was, a, it was a total letdown for Mark Twain going on this trip in, in terms of the people that he met, what he thought of them. And when he got to the Holy Land, uh, he really uh, was turned off by, by what he saw there. So when, when they got to Europe, first of all, uh, on the boat, he was walking around European cities, and, and he, he said the priests were very, very well-fed, let's put it that way. Some of them were quite overweight, but the poor that he found, they were like just barely scraping by, and he said, this isn't right. He went to see a lot of religious attractions. He saw The Last Supper by Da Vinci, and he thought that local Europeans, he just didn't think very highly of them. He didn't think that they were that, he called them dull, essentially. And then the religious pilgrims from America, a lot of them were from small towns. They'd never been overseas. And he thought that they were very narrow-minded people. They would have prayer meetings every night on the Quaker City, America's first cruise ship. And he he found them to be hypocrites because they would pray. And then when they got to these various ports of call, they would just ignore all the poor people that they saw. Obviously, there are lots of beggars around and people. And they would just basically act like these people didn't exist. And then when they got to the Holy Land, this is an 8,000-mile journey. This was, a, this was a big trip. That was kind of the last straw for Mark Twain. Uh, he noted that they would cry crocodile tears when they went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And they would try to, their best to get religious uh, mementos, souvenirs. They would chisel off pieces of you know, buildings that were, that were really important religiously. And they would... He said they would haggle with people on the Sea of Galilee. These guys were operating boats and trying to take people on rides of the Sea of Galilee, and they would kind of haggle and try to get a cheaper price uh, where Jesus walked on the water. And so um, another person that was interviewed in the film about Mark Twain was Anne Ryan, another uh, scholar of Mark Twain. She said this, quote, What fascinates Mark Twain most as he enters the Holy Land is not so much the Holy Land itself and its various relics and temples, but the artificial response of the pilgrims that he's traveling with. He sees it as a desecration, end of quote. Now again, Mark Twain came from a Calvinistic background, Protestant background, Presbyterian uh, to be exact. And so he, he just really was scandalized by, by Jerusalem and the amount of what he called or thought was religious decoration, too much, uh, too many crosses, uh, too many mosaics, too many statues. He, he, thought, he thought of it as kind of a religious theme park, if you will, as one of the scholars said in the film. And he really wasn't that excited about it. But one thing one thing did kind of get to Mark Twain, though. When he was in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, he didn't necessarily believe... Now, you go up this staircase when you're in the Holy Sepulchre Church, and you're allowed to sort of reach your hand in and touch the rock underneath the stairs, at the top of the stairs, and that is the rock of Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified. Now, whether it was that on that exact spot or not, it's a pretty, it's right there. I mean, th- this is historically, Mark Twain was a little bit skeptical about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, but modern-day archaeologists will tell you this is as sure as, as we could possibly be about anything archaeologically, that Jesus really was crucified here, and that the church was built over top of it. There's, there's no question about this, but he was he was actually... Kind of, kind of, at least a little bit moved when he went to the Church of Holy, uh, the Holy Sepulchre. Here's what he said. He wrote this later on. Quote, I could not believe that the three holes in the top of the rock were the actual ones that the crosses stood in, but 
I felt satisfied that those crosses had stood so near the place now occupied by them that the few feet of possible difference were a matter of no consequence, end of quote. And he, he is absolutely right that this is where it happened. Now, whether he ought to be so skeptical about that specific spot, that's another question for another day. So he had this kind of meaningful spiritual experience there. And he kind of, okay, like I, these religious pilgrims, I think they're nuts, but I can get why people feel this is really a powerful moment because this is historical. These things actually happen. And I think that's what drew him really to St. Joan of Arc, as, as we'll see when he writes this biography of St. Joan of Arc, he's drawing on historical records. And this guy who was kind of irreligious, who was far from being a Catholic, he just found her life so powerful. And he, he made it his life's mission, really, to write this book. It took him over 10 years to research it. But we'll get to that in a second. But, but he was just so... He would just absolutely pillory religious hypocrisy whenever he saw this. Um, in 1909, which is one year before he died, Mark Twain wrote, quote, Man is without any doubt the most interesting fool there is. And he wrote this in, in a commentary on Bible stories. And also the most eccentric, Mark Twain would add. He hasn't a single written law in his Bible or out of it, which has any but just one purpose and intention, to limit or defeat the law of God, end of quote. So, as you can see, he was certainly a skeptic. So why would he write about St. Joan of Arc? And what was it about this book that became so powerful? We'll explore this after the break. It's the K.O. Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888-914-9149. Be right back. The Kale Clark Show, giving you the confidence you need to bring the faith into everyday life. Hey, welcome back to the program, 888-914-9149. It's Tuesday. Even though it's Tuesday, we're kicking off the work week today because yesterday was, of course, Memorial Day. And, of course, we want to pray for the repose of the souls of all who gave the ultimate sacrifice, 888-914-9149. It's the feast day of Another warrior today, St. Joan of Arc. We'll talk more about that in just a second. Let's go to the phones right now. Peter is calling from Port Washington, Wisconsin. Hi, Peter. Hello. Hi. Uh, really enjoy your program. Thank you. That's so kind. Um, uh, I listen to you, I, I listen to you every, every day on the way home from work, so learned a oh. lot. <laughs> hey, well, glad to be your companion on, on, on those sometimes uh, lonely drives and traffic jams. Um, but I, I did want to get your opinion or your thoughts sure. on, um, I was on my way to work this morning, heard on the news, on the radio, I guess, I guess some people are, you know, calling it a miracle that happened in Missouri over the weekend mm -hmm. that people, um, were traveling to, uh, about, I guess it was at a monastery and, yes. uh, that they, um, uh, I guess they were building a new shrine, so they had to exhume the uh, the, the casket of a, of a black nun, they said, and when they opened up the casket, she wasn't um, decomposed. And they're yes, calling it right. And I was, you know, I just wanted to get, you know, you know you're the first person I thought of. <laughs> oh, well. I, I, 
what your fun to get what your thoughts were on that. Well, yeah, thanks so much, Peter. I appreciate your kind words. Uh, I really do, and uh, I'm so thankful to everybody who who listens to the program because you could be doing a million other things, and and the fact that you're uh, taking time to spend with me is uh, something I don't I don't take lightly. And um, and with respect to the nun in question, that uh, might be incorrupt. And again, we we're not quite sure about that. Um, we have to let that, of course, as I mentioned last week. I did talk about this last week on the Kale Clark Show, and you can look it up in the in the archives on RelevantRadio.com, the Relevant Radio app, Peter. I think it was on Thursday's show. That was a, a really fun show because we also talked about the deathbed conversion or reversion to the Catholic faith uh, because he did grow up Catholic. Um, Babe Ruth, uh, incredible letter that he wrote at the end of his life. Wow, we shared that. And uh, we also talked about Sister Wilhelmina, uh, who is the nun who might be incorrupt, um, certainly inspiring a lot of devotion, long, long lines this past weekend uh, to see her body uh, which apparently has now been encased uh, in glass. And one of the things I said last week as the story was breaking was that uh, we don't know for sure whether she will be officially judged to be incorrupt. That, that is a decision that is made by the competent parties, uh, the local bishop. Of course, they'll scientifically have to take a look at this as well. But her life is incredibly inspiring. And I shared a little bit about her background and her journey of faith and uh it's a great uh, American story, and you should definitely check it out uh, on uh, the archives of our show. And again, I think it was from Thursday's episode, and maybe producer Jim, you could uh, just put a link uh, in the show notes. And it's also interesting because this is happening in, in Missouri, right? It's the show me state. Hey, show me the power of God. And, and Jim, you were telling me that your mom made a pilgrimage there to see Sister Wilhelmina's body, correct? She did. You know, she, like so many others, she, she found the story out. And, and as soon as she did, she's like, I got to go. And so she was able to actually touch the actual body and touch some holy cards to the body. And it's a very powerful story. And um, it's incredible, you know, the church we live in and the times we live in. And of course, like you said, we'll wait to hear what we hear from the local bishop in the Vatican. Yeah, in the Vatican too. Yeah. Just such a, a, a good news story, you know, either way. Um, to, to kind of uh, boost people's mm-hmm. faith. It really is, and, and the juxtaposition of the, the mockery of nuns, and I don't need to go into that, what's been happening in the media with the Dodgers organization. You all know that story. We talked about that as well. And uh, what a palate cleanser to, to see this this truly holy nun. And I, I was just amazed, Jim, as I said last week, that they were allowing people to actually touch the body, touch her hands. I'm like, hang on here. Uh, this might not be the greatest. Uh, if, she is, if she is incorrupt, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, so I was, I was really surprised at that. But you also said that your mom touched your, your high school picture uh, yeah. to St. Uh, Wilhelmina. Wish I could go back now and retake <laughs> some of the tests well, <laughs> in high school. <laughs> well, you know what I was going to say? That's funny. I was, what I was going to say was, hey, that, that's like the best version of yourself. You know, like the, is, when you get your resurrection body, do you want to go back to like high school gym or, or what, do you, what stage of life do you want? I don't know. That's a good question. Maybe you're kind of I a machine do, right now, man. You've been, could, running, you've been doing all this running and everything, yeah. so I don't know. I could, <laughs> I could shoot a few more three-pointers back in the day. So probably, yeah, probably back in high school, that'd be the time to be. <laughs> uh, I love it. I love it. Well, hey, that was maybe when you were in the best fighting shape. And speaking of fighting shape, there's a segue for you. Let's get back to the story of St. Joan of Arc, who is that great maid of Orleans, that warrior saint. Uh, so incredibly rare, especially for that time in the 15th century, the young French girl who became a leader of armies, the armies of France, on a mission from God. It's a little bit like the Blues Brothers, but not really. It's 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 for real. 
And I want to talk about Mark Twain's novel, and, and we, we touched on this before the break, her novel, St. Joan of Arc, and uh, a professor of English and a writer at Hill, Hillsdale College, uh, Dr. Kelly Scott Franklin, did a nice review of Mark Twain's uh, book, Joan of Arc, and which, was, again, was republished by Ignatius Press in 2007. You can find copies of it uh, online, of course. And he reviewed it um, for the Catholic World Report, and, and it was a really, really good piece, a lot of, a lot of insight and he said that uh, he knew, he said that Mark Twain, when, when he wrote the book, he knew it would be really confusing to people who kind of read his original stuff. They're like, what is he doing writing this? And in fact, they, they, they published segments of the novel in Harper's Magazine in 1895. And he actually wanted it to be published um, anonymously. He was like, I don't want anybody to know initially that I wrote this. Maybe he was afraid of what the reaction might be. I don't know. But it was kind of a labor of love for him. And again, Mark Twain said, quote, I like Joan of Arc the best of all my books, and it is the best, end of quote. And they're still scratching their heads, scholars of Mark Twain, why he would do this. The guy who wrote Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, um, a religious skeptic, noted skeptic, why is he writing about a 15th century young Catholic saint? And... It is a mystery, but um, Dr. Uh, Dr. Kelly Scott Franklin says the mystery deepens when you start reading the book because it's just meticulous research. You don't see the outrageous humor and, and stuff that's in his other books. He's really serious, almost reverent as he's crafting this biography. And it took him, again, over 10 years by his own admission to research, prepare, and write this book. And it actually starts, it starts with, with Joan, who's living in the sleepy village of Domermy in France, and there's been this bloody hundred years war with England going on, and Charles VII, who is the rightful king of France, he, he hasn't been crowned yet, we, we all saw the coronation of King Charles a couple weeks ago, Charles VII of France was not crowned yet, there was this corrupt court going on, it was, it was kind of a disaster, and again, Joan said that she heard voices and got these visions, these, these marching orders, if you will, from St. Michael the Archangel, commander of the heavenly army, other saints as well. And she goes to the king and says, God has sent me to save France. And everyone's like, okay. <laughs> but it actually starts to happen. And she starts to lead the armies and defeat after defeat of the English forces. All these fortifications fall to the, to the French, to the French. And th this is just an unbelievable true story. And Mark Twain said, quote, I never attributed an act to the maid herself, and she was known as the maid of Orleans. I never attributed an act to the maid herself that was not strictly historical. And I never put a sentence in her mouth which she had not uttered, end of quote. Can you, can you imagine that? So we actually have a, a lot of historical uh, facts about about St. Joan of Arc. Despite the, the incredibly miraculous nature of her story, there's a lot of testimony, a lot of documentation on this. And it comes from her trial. And we'll get into that in, in just a second. And this is what uh, what Joan said. And, and this is she's quoted in, in Mark Twain's book here as God calls her, quote, I am enlisted. I will not turn back, God helping me, till the English grip is loosed from the throat of France. End of quote. And so she just had this strong sense of God's call, and she never wavered. She just went for it. And that, that's, that's pretty impressive uh, in and of itself. But 
there are all these mystical things that happened. She had this prophecy that a mysterious sword was going to be found buried under the altar of a church. She prophesied her various victories and that she was going to be wounded in one of the battles. And this, the supernatural is so strong. And so, um, again, Mark Twain got a lot of his information from not only her trial, which eventually resulted in her being burned at the stake, 1431, but after her death, of course, the, the Roman Catholic Church overturned this result, this local result, and said, no, she, she's actually a, a canonizable saint here. And so this, this is what um, Mark Twain wrote in the preface to, uh, to the novel. He said, quote, The details of the life of Joan of Arc form a biography which is unique among the world's biographies in one respect. It is the only story of a human life which comes to us under oath the only one which comes to us from the witness stand, end of quote. So, so again, he got most of his information from, from the trial documentation that was still out there about um, Joan of Arc. And again, when people are giving testimonies about her, they're, they're giving testimony under oath, so that adds some weight to, to what they're saying about her. And, and again, this is, this is God acting in human history in the person of what he was doing with Joan of Arc. And in the same way... That's why when Mark Twain, we talked about this before the break, when he went to the Holy Land, yeah, he thought the pilgrims were insincere and hypocritical. He thought that in some ways Jerusalem was like a religious carnival, people just selling stuff all over the place. But when he went into the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, he did realize, like, wow, Jesus was actually crucified here. This actually did happen. That does make a difference. So that was really cool. But here, here's, a, here's a great quote, and this is from uh, the review from Dr. Kelly Scott Franklin. I really like the way he puts this. L listen to this as he's reviewing this book by, uh, by Mark Twain. He said, quote, Joan's life reveals her natural gifts as well. And Mark Twain cherishes those qualities in her. He depicts her amazing leadership, especially her ability to transform fallen men into heroes. One of her childhood companions was a boastful coward known mockingly as the Paladin. And she says to him calmly, Of old you were a fantastic talker, but there is a man in you, and I will bring it out. Will you follow where I lead? And then the narrator, Mark Twain, puts it this way. The maid was supremely great in the gift of firing the hearts of hopeless men with noble enthusiasms, the gift of turning hares into heroes, and when I say hares, I mean like rabbits, H-A-R-E-S. You know, they didn't turn tail and run. He, she turned hares into heroes, slaves and skulkers into battalions that marched to the death with songs upon their lips, end of quote. In this way, Joan of Arc looks upon men with God's eyes. Seeing the greatness to which each man is called, she reaches out her hand and challenges him to stand up. We could all use a little Joan of Arc in our lives. End of quote. That, that is such a, a, a great quote uh, by the professor there. And because this is exactly what God does for us, that he sees what we're capable of. And, and Joan of Arc was able to look at this ragtag band of potential soldiers and say, hey, it's like Mulan, you know, I'm going to make a man out of you. You know, she sees this guy, the paladin, he just, he was, he was all talk, no action, knew him when he was a kid. And she says, I'm going to make a man out of you here. You know, are you going to follow me where I lead you? And he's like, all right, I'll go. And, and she's able to fire up these guys' hearts with patriotism and love of God. And, and this is exactly what, what our Lord wants to do with us, to, 
to understand the greatness of the mission to which we were we are called as we as we follow Christ, this call to become saints. Are you going to do it? Are you going to become a canonizable saint? We could all use a little Joan of Arc in our lives. And from time to time, God does send us people, and we need to be aware of their presence to to wake us up, whether it's a, a spiritual director, whether it's a friend, whether it's a family member, maybe even a spouse, saying, you can be better, and you should be better. We have to do that. And then Mark Twain also reminds us that in spite of these incredible natural leadership gifts that Joan of Arc had and the amazing supernatural things that God did through her, she was just a girl. She was just a girl, and she was a peasant girl. <laughs> Despite leading the armies of France, she took pride in that she was great at sewing. She believed that fairies were real. She couldn't read. She couldn't write. And there's a, there's a really poignant passage in the book where Mark Twain talks about her after the French won this incredible battle, took an English fortress, and there's all these dead bodies all over the place. He says, quote, she's sitting among a ruck of corpses with her face in her hands crying. For she was a young girl, you know, and her hero heart was a young girl's heart too, with the pity and the tenderness that are natural to it. She was thinking of the mothers of those dead friends and enemies, end of quote. So wow, what a juxtaposition. Uh, a girl yet a woman, uh, uh, so weak and yet so strong as God used her. The courage of, of Joan of Arc also comes through. And, and in Mark Twain's book, it, he narrates how she speaks to kings, she speaks to bishops, she's unafraid. Uh, her own army will turn coward and run away, and she will charge into battle. She gets shot by a crossbow, and then she's leading another attack by the time night comes around. And, of course, the, the biggest test of her, of her courage was her martyrdom being burned at the stake. And uh, there's a prophetic little bit that happens before this uh, takes place. She's going into a city. It's a triumphal entry of sorts. The crowds are cheering. And one of the military banners that she was holding catches fire from one of the torches. And she put out the flame with her bare hand. She just kind of grabbed the, the fabric and you know, just kind of doused the flame. And the crowd is like, ooh. And they say, she's not afraid of fire or anything. And that's, of course, incredibly prophetic when, when you think about the way that she was martyred, this, this trial, corrupt church officials. She was captured in battle, handed over to the English. Um, a, a wicked bishop, uh, which you know, was supporting the English, kind of on the English side, kind of had her condemned to death. And that's it. So it's, it's an incredible uh, account by Mark Twain, the, the glories of the life of Joan of arc and, and this is a really cool saying too this is one of the great um incidences of, of divine wisdom being given when jesus says in the gospel hey don't don't think about what you're going to say when you're, you're going to be dragged before governors you're going to be dragged before kings you're going to be dragged before princes on account of me and on account of the gospel don't don't pre-plan out what you're going to say because the holy spirit will give you wisdom that your enemies will not be able to withstand and that's exactly what happened to joan of arc because when she was on trial and her the kangaroo court was happening, they, they would just like, the lawyers would just grill her, threaten her with torture, deny her the Eucharist. And she kept on saying, no, this really happened. I had these visions. The, these saints did speak to me. And she was once asked during her trial, are you in a state of grace? Are you in a state of grace? And they're trying to trip her up and ask her a, a tricky spiritual question to sort of prove that she's really a heretic. 
And this was her answer, uh, recorded by Mark Twain, what he called her immortal answer. Joan of Arc said, If I be not in a state of grace, I pray God place me in it. If I be in it, I pray God keep me so. That's <laughs> such a great answer. If I'm not in a state of grace, I pray that God puts me in it. But if I am in a state of grace, I pray that God keeps me so. So she didn't want to give in to that sin of presumption, this idea that God must forgive me. And, and, and so many people think that. They think, oh, I, you know, I'm Catholic. I'm baptized Catholic. I can do whatever I want because God must forgive me in the end. I don't have to be in a state of grace. Everything will be okay. And that's the great opiate of the masses, if you will, this idea that my choices don't really matter. Um, mortal sin doesn't really exist. And that, that is a, a lie from the enemy. And so we've got to be um, certainly on guard, if you will, to, as, as Joan of Arc might have said, she's about to charge into battle. And so she was burned at the stake, received into the fire of, of God's holiness, the fire of his presence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that, this is really cool. And, and just, just one last little note that Mark Twain, this is amazing. So Mark Twain was actually still living on planet Earth when Joan of Arc was beatified. Of course, again, she was canonized in 1920 by Benedict XV, but she was beatified in 1909, and Mark Twain was still alive. And you know what? He had to have been thinking, man, that, that, that biography that I wrote, maybe it helped. <laughs> maybe, maybe it helped somehow. And so it's just incredible how a guy like Mark Twain, who was kind of irreligious or was certainly a little bit skeptical about religion for sure, although I think he was a theist, but he just wasn't didn't have much time for churches or, or in many cases Christians, he, he saw Joan of Arc and he said, this is real. This is compelling. I, am, I must write about it. And, it, and it, it affected him deeply. And so this is, this is why we have to, to live these lives of integrity in our faith, because people are looking for the real deal. There are a lot of Mark Twains out there who are skeptical by nature, who uh, see scandals going on at high levels of the church, and they say, I, how can I take this seriously? So when they come across you and you're living your, your Catholic life re realistically and, and, and authentically and supernaturally, you better believe it gets people's attention. I'm not saying you have to start a battle or anything like Joan of Arc, but we have to start a spiritual battle, uh, this, this battle of love, if you will, where our weapons are, are, are love and, and forgiveness and grace and holiness. Uh, that's what we've really got to do. And so... Joan of Arc, wow, what, what an incredible life at the disposal of God and how he used her and how he's, she still inspires lives today. So it's her feast, feast day, St. Joan of Arc, please pray for us. Well, we need God's help too in, in the battles that we face. And some of those battles take place in the office, the battleground of the office. And uh, if you watch the sitcom The Office, you know that that can sometimes literally be true. Uh, the, the people in the next cubicle aren't always your friends. But how do, you, how do you handle it when you've got internal conflicts? But what should I do? I've got professional problems. I've got professional situations. How can God help me deal with this? Well, we're going to find out after the break. You're listening to The Cale Clark Show, 888-914-9149. Be right back. This is The Cale Clark Show, giving you the confidence you need to bring the faith into everyday life. Hey, welcome back to the show. 888-914-9149 is the number to call. 888-914-9149. You can get your question to me a couple of different ways by phone. 
You can also email the show, and I'll try to uh, answer it on air if possible. If you've got a question or maybe a show idea, you can send it to kale, C-A-L-E, at relevantradio.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at kale clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. So it's Tuesday, but it's kind of like Monday because it's our first day back at work after the holiday weekend uh, for Memorial Day. And I heard a talk last night, it was really interesting, um, by uh, a Catholic who's, who's in the business community, works for a big bank, and it was it was all about how to kind of find God's will for you at work, especially when you've got professional issues, professional problems, you know, choices to make in your career. And I thought it was really insightful, and so I, I took a, a whack of notes, and I, I just, I it was just really kind of spoke to me, so I thought maybe... Uh, hey, if something's speaking to me, maybe it might speak to somebody else out there. I, I don't really know, but uh, he was talking about how our lives are, are it, we're on a journey. We're always on a journey, right? From conception to Christ, I like to say. And it, and on this journey, this winding road of life, uh, we go through different stages and, and there are, you know, curves on the road, there are crossroads, there are big decisions we have to make, there are mountains we have to climb. Sometimes we're you know, smooth sailing downhill and we're, everything's going well. We have successes. We have goals that are met. And there are also failures that happen as well and, and things that make our lives at times frustrating on, on a human level. And it was kind of the same with, with Jesus too because his life was was an amazing journey as as he, from, from his birth in Bethlehem to the crucifixion and beyond in, in, in Jerusalem, it was it was an incredible journey. I mean, from Egypt and all throughout, of course, as many journeys uh, in the Holy Land, preaching at the in the synagogues of, of Galilee, and so he knows what it's like to be on a journey for sure. And and he's walking with us too. And, and it's a little bit like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, narrated in Luke's Gospel, chapter twenty four. And and they don't know that it's him, but he's he's walking with them on the journey. And it can be like that in every aspect of our life. We, a lot of it is just, a lot of the Catholic life is just trying to become more aware of the presence of God with us, that Jesus is with us, and he's right beside us, and he's living within us in a state of grace. And, and that's true in the workplace, too. And we have to not only figure out that he's with us, but also learn how to see him in other people, the people that we're working with. These are people for, for whom he died. And yeah, that annoying colleague that is always trying to, I don't know, chat you up at the water cooler and you're just, you're just, you have to have a smile for that person. <laughs> and sometimes that's the, the best mortification of all, as St. Jose Maria said, is just to, to smile um, and, and not show and try to love. You got to go beyond just toleration of people and try to try to, to love them. And yeah, you know. Humanly speaking, we're not going to be best buddies with everybody, but but this is one of the ways that we can we can encounter him. And and when we are at work, sometimes we're trying to plan out our career, no matter what stage of life we're in, whether we're a student, whether we're starting our first job, whether we've been in the workforce for a long time, we, we have a lot of choices sometimes to make. And, we, and sometimes we, we don't know what to do. And we're almost like Thomas in, in the Gospel of John, not the time where he was, you know, I'll believe it when I see the wounds and stick my hand in. No, even before that, Thomas said to Christ, hey, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And, and Jesus' famous answer, of course, John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So he's the way. He's the truth. 
and he's the life. And that's, that's true in a, in, a, in a whole bunch of different ways. And one of the ways that he is the way is that we have to kind of live life according to this pattern, the pan, pattern of life that he laid down for us. He was an example for us. Again, remember those WWJD bracelets that were so popular back in the day? What would Jesus do? And I had a friend who stole his brother's WWJD bracelet. I, I, that was, that's probably not what Jesus would do, so I thought that was pretty ironic. But, but he's laying down the, the pattern. And so, okay, how do we do that? Well, Pope Francis once said this. He said, the right path is Jesus. That's a, that's a pretty good saying. You know, the right path is Jesus. If you want to know which path you should go down, if you're at a fork in the road, the right path is Jesus. Now, it kind of answers the question, but it kind of doesn't because it requires some, some thinking, right? What, what is the path that Jesus has for us? What would he do in this particular situation? Well, understand that he's going to guide you too. He's going to sustain you and he's going to be with you in everything that you do, including in your professional life. So what's difficult though, is that when it's, when it's really hard to know exactly what God wants, and there's many different possibilities. And one of the things that we're doing right now on the Faith Explained program, uh, 1230 Central and Relevant Ready, we just started a new series called The Holy Spirit, A Beginner's Guide. And I, I know you're going to, well, hopefully you're going you're to enjoy it and you're going to be learning along with me because I, I need to know more about the Holy Spirit. He's kind of the great unknown, as St. Jose Maria said. And we, need, we, we think we understand God the Father. We think, you know, God the Son, obviously the incarnation seems to make it easier for us to understand what he's like. But the Holy Spirit is still a mystery to so many. So we've got to learn to know him more and better. And so tomorrow we're going to talk a little bit more on the show about the particular will of God for us. There's the general will, of course, with we've got to obey the commandments, we've got to keep the moral law, we've got to do what the scriptures say to do and what the church teaches. That That's table stakes. But what about individual choices that aren't covered by any of these things where, where it seems like we're almost free to decide or it's not taught very clearly uh, by the church? And and there's one of any number of good choices that we can make. What if you're What if you're working for a company and they offer you a transfer to another state? or even to a different country, should you go? Um, you have to think about more than just yourself. You have to think about your kids. Uh, you have to think about a lot of different aspects. Um, you're offered a promotion, and it's, it's a big one, but are you accepting this job only for vain reasons, because it's going to give you more human glory? Or is this really what God wants for you? Because you might be so busy doing this thing that you, other aspects of your life might fall by the wayside. And so we have to kind of learn to look at our lives holistically because we have to integrate all the, this is what unity of life is really all about. This living for Christ in every area of our life and understanding that, that it is holistic. It's our spiritual life. It's our professional life. It's our family life. It's our friendships. It's our apostolates, our sharing of the faith. And, and so the decisions that we make, we have to kind of look at all of those things. And it's not always easy. And this is why we need the Holy Spirit to really help. And uh, he can help us to discern what is the right path for you at, at this time. And so I think that's, that's, uh, that's an important thing we need to do sometimes. And let, let, let him be kind of our, our Google map in life, if you will, and I was going to say the old GPSs. You remember those ones that used to, when you get off track, they would say in your car, recalculating, recalculating. And they don't say that anymore. They just say rerouting and doesn't really tell you or scream at you that's recalculating. But, but, but we sometimes need to do that. Sometimes we need to slow down. We need to figure out, are we on the right road? Um, maybe we need to make a U-turn. 
Um, how do our passengers, the people that are with us in this car, you know, called life, how do they feel about where we're going? Um, a lot of that, uh, we, we all have to take, take into, in, into play and to integrate it all. And that's, that's not easy. That's, that's certainly not easy. And so it calls for prayer. It calls for wisdom. It calls for help. Spiritual directors are really good with this, I think. And, uh, we've got to make use of that whenever we, we possibly can. And, uh, okay. So anyways, just a couple of stray thoughts there. We could talk about this more another time, but, um, I really found that to be, uh, to be thought provoking for me. All right. So, uh, Patrick Alog who's working the phones for us, uh, has just told me that, uh, there was a caller who called and didn't want to go on air, maybe a little shy, but wanted to ask this question. Why does Jesus always send people to martyrdom like St. Paul and St. Joan? St. Joan of Arc, of course, her feast day today. Well, he doesn't send all of us to a bloody martyrdom, that, that's for sure. And uh, in the early church, there were people that they knew that martyrdom was kind of a free ticket to heaven. It's not free. You have to pay for it with your life. But the church has always taught that, hey, even if you're not baptized, if you shed your blood for the truth of the gospel, you go straight to heaven. Do not pass go. Uh, the shedding of your blood serves as your martyrdom. And, and during the, the persecutions in the early church, a lot of people would sort of volunteer and throw themselves into the fray. And, and then they would... Uh, turn tail and they would recant the faith because they had taken it upon themselves to to do this. And, and God is the one who ultimately is in charge uh, of this. Now, we all have to give our lives for Christ, but but he doesn't call all of us to to shed our blood for Christ. Um, but we, we, we all have to lay down our lives. So there are different types of martyrdom, of course. Um, there's the martyrdom of losing your reputation. So many people have, have had to face that, especially in this day and age, for standing up uh, for the gospel. So it's God's choice, um, and what we're called to do is just be faithful, and he's going to give us the grace for whatever he calls us to when we need it. When we need it. We can't stockpile it, but when we need it. It's kind of on demand, if you will. And speaking of on demand, if you missed any episodes from uh, the Kale Clark Show or The Faith Explained, check the relevant radio app relevantradio.com and keep it locked here on relevant radio uh, tim Marie's coming up next followed by father rocky and the family rosary across america god bless you jim shaper produced patrick alock took your phone calls we'll see you tomorrow take it away michaela thank you for listening to my daddy